Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A, thread, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of God. Thank you. Let's pray. God, grateful to be here this morning. Lord, to be washed in uh, your word uh, that is both proclaimed and sang to be amongst um, your people, your children, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God, I thank you for that song that you are the good and steady anchor, uh, that you hold firm behind the veil. Uh, God, that uh, grateful, Lord Jesus, that, um, that the veil has been torn, that we have access to the Father, and that we are forever anchored there that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, this side of salvation. And uh, so, God, I just pray that uh, as we um, just look at the preacher's words today in chapter 4, God, as it uh, points to um, relationship, it reminds us of the second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. God, I pray that we'd be encouraged, we'd be motivated by the gospel, and that we would be convicted as you, as you see fit. I pray, God, that you would receive all the glory and the praise and the honor. Um, and I pray, God, that you would um, help my voice, help my cough, um, Lord, to, um, for the protection of your word and the protection of the ears of the people that are listening. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm curious, was anybody here uh, first service last Sunday? couple of you? Yeah, a couple of you were. As, you, as I think I admitted, it was a cough fest. Um, the, uh, I got through the second service by God's grace. Um, this morning I got, after the second service last week when Jolene gave me the secret sauce that prevented me from coughing, I went ahead and started a business online. It's called jolenestea.com. But then after the first service um, this morning when I drank it, I just, I just shut the business down because it didn't work. 
anymore. So sorry, Jolene. But uh, I am praying that God would help me get through this here this morning. Um, really excited to be up here. This passage is, uh, like every section of Scripture, is just alive. Um, it's working. Um, God is wanting to press it into our hearts and souls this morning. So I pray that you would just have ears to hear, um, even through some occasional coughing, and that you'd be asking God, what do you have for me this morning? What are the takeaways for me this morning to help me live my life in su- joyful submission to you this week? I've titled the sermon, Two Are Better Than One, with the subtitle, Living for We, Not Me. Two are better than one, living for we, not me. Last week, we saw the preacher observe all the oppressions under the sun. And he saw that those who were being oppressed, there was nobody to wipe their tear, there was nobody to comfort them. And really just as I was um, thinking about how to... Um, teach that passage last week, it really, it left me hanging. It gave, no, it gave no explanations other than that there are people that are oppressed, that need comforting, and they need somebody to wipe their tears. So we, we went to Luke, if you remember, we went to Luke chapter 10, verses 35 through 37, and we looked at the account of Jesus talking to a crowd, and then a, a lawyer um, calling out to Jesus. It says in verse 25 in Luke chapter 10, it says a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And right after those words came out of Jesus' mouth, the lawyer said, well, who is my neighbor? If you remember, if you know the context of that passage, it's not so much about the good Samaritan as it is about who is our neighbor. And that's what the attorney was saying, the lawyer was saying, he's saying, like, do I, I want to pick and choose my neighbor. So Jesus gave him the parable of the good Samaritan to illustrate who his neighbor is. If you remember the parable, right, there was a, a man that was robbed and beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, and one man passed and did nothing, another man passed and did nothing, and a third man um, stopped, uh, bound up the um, dying man's wounds, um, took him to a um, uh, uh, Hotel of Antiquity, um, paid for two nights, and said that if you need more money, I'll, I'll provide the money. And Jesus came back and said, um, that's an example of who your neighbor is, um, whoever I've providentially put you in contact with. Last week, I submitted to you that there are three aspects of proximity that might be helpful in defining who your neighbor is. And it's a question that I hope you're asking yourself. If the second greatest commandment is that we're, we're to love our neighbors ourselves, we need to know who our neighbor is. And we live in neighborhoods, and I think sometimes that's all we think about is our neighborhoods as who our neighbor is. So I submitted that there's maybe three aspects of proximity that might be helpful in defining or helping you determine who your neighbor is. Um, the one that I talked about last week is one that, um, that I don't have, a whole, quite frankly, a whole lot of uh, biblical background on it to, to support it, but I do believe this, that God has given um, some of us a heart for certain people. Um, for example, I think I shared with you last week, God has given me a heart for um, teenage foster kids. Um, we watched this, uh, we watched Instant Family the other night. Anybody seen that movie? Holy cow. I just, I was like a, I was a sobbing mess. But if you haven't seen it and you have a heart for foster adoption, you might, you might look at that. 
um, and it, it has a teenager in it as well. But I have a heart for kids that are going to get aged out and just just fall, just just disappear into the system. And I think the Lord has given us each a unique heart for an oppressed group of people that are in need of comfort that we may not be necessarily in geographical proximity to. What are some examples of that? The unborn, the sanctity of life, um, orphans, um, um, refugees, immigrants, the persecuted church around the world. I believe God wants us to care for those things. And we can't all individually care for all of those things. But what I encourage you to do last week is just pray. Like, God, if you, have you given me a heart for um, one of those groups of people that are living um, under oppression? The other type of proximity that we just touched on is geographic proximity. And that's the, the Good Samaritan. I would say that he operated in geographic proximity. That, that the guy that, that was beaten up and dying on the side of the road was his neighbor at that moment. He didn't know him. He'd never seen him before probably. And he may never see him again. But he passed by. He saw somebody that was oppressed that needed to be comforted. He needed his tears to be wiped. And he stopped. And what we're going to be talking about today is the, the low-hanging fruit of, of loving our neighbor. And that's relational, um, uh, relational proximity. Who has God in his providence put you in relationship with? And it's just obvious. obvious. We were, um, I was going to make a slide of this, but I was just thinking about this in my own life. I just drew some concentric circles and thinking about like who, who is my neighbor relationally in God's providence? It's not something I can create. It's something you actually examine and go, oh, that's where I live. And for me, it's WCC. Um, it's my gym. It's CrossFit 970. Um, it's the Hardy family at some level. And I've got this, um, this oppressed uh, casa um, and refugee that God's kind of given me a heart for those two um, groups of people, uh, teenagers that are in the casa program and then refugees. And uh, that was just helpful for me that I don't need, um, I don't need more relationships. Um, I've got more relationships than I can actually love and serve. And I, and I would submit that you do as well. So today we're going to look at a section of scripture that's going to zero in on this relational proximity. And it's a popular section of scripture that has been read at many weddings, actually. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. <coughs> I want to tell you right up front, um, I'm going to cough a little bit. Um, Pat is on call. Uh, Dr. Pat's on call. Last service, I actually had him come up and read from my notes. It was very effective. It was... Uh, very effective. It's better than me coughing. So we might have to do that again. God's word is God's word. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, it's the, it has direct, this, this, these verses have direct application and instruction for how we are to see other people and how we're to love our neighbor. Now this is an understatement. We live in a hyper-connected world today where you have more relationships um, than any time in history. Um, I got more friends on Facebook today than I did last month. Well, I'm not sure that's true. Because I've got like, for every two that I, that I add, I, one comes off because they don't like the things that I say. At the same time, however, we have fewer friends. Those who know us best and those we know best. And I'm going to really press into that today because I think we live in a culture where we think we have a lot of friends, but at the end of the day, we don't have many friends who truly know us and we know them. 
1990, the average American had 3.2 friends. In 2018, the average has dropped to 1.8. And at the same time, while our connections with other people have exploded. Americans have traded personal connection and friendships with virtual identity. And all of this hyperconnection has made us lonelier, actually, with less relationships with people who know us, who know our dreams, who know our joys, who know our struggles, who know our fears. It's actually possible to be lonely and by yourself in the midst of a crowd here today, in your home, in the workplace. There's nothing new under the sun. The Beatles wrote a song in 1963. All the lonely people. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And today we're going to talk about where all the lonely people belong. Where all of us belong. (coughs) It's in relationship with other people. I'm a moderately relational guy. On the disc test, I'm, I'm, I'm just above the line on being, um, on being uh, what do you call it, not an extrovert. Um, I'm not introverted, and I'm not like over-the-top extroverted. I'm a, I'm a um, moderately relational guy. I love people. I love working with people. I love working with different groups of people to help them collaborate and work together to accomplish a common goal or to build something of value together. However, if I'm not careful, I can see people as a means to an end. Not see people as a relationship, but like, okay, people, here's the goal. Here's where we're headed. And I can see people as a means to the end. (coughs) While doing that, over the years, people that I've done life with on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, um, drop a bomb that they've just committed adultery. Or that my wife is just getting ready to leave me. Or I've been drinking a six-pack a day for two years. Or that my child has been, stu- has been struggling with suicide. And I knew none of that. But I could tell you um, where they worked. Um, I could tell you where they fit um, on the team as we're headed towards a common goal. I could tell you um, not only where they worked, I could tell you the stock symbol of the company that they worked for. But I couldn't tell you their fears, their dreams, their joys, their struggles. And, And part of that's on me. Part of that's on you and those relationships. But part of it's on the person that's struggling as well. And we've got to ask the question, how do we create environments? How do we have relationships where we can live in as transparent um, neighbors, loving each other, while giving each other to have, to be, uh, giving each other to, uh, giving each other the freedom to be people in process? I don't know about you, but I'm very much in process. We're all in process. I got a few questions for you this morning. I've got three just to ponder. One is, is are you living more for me or for we? Two is, are you enjoying the reward of relationship? And next is, what's standing in the way of deeper relationships in your home, in this church, in your community group, in your neighborhood, 
So today we're going to look at the beauty and the importance of community. We're going to be reminded that we were created for relationship. And that there's a great reward, the preacher says, actually, in living for we and not me. We will see today, I pray, that two is truly better than one. And in this section of scripture, verses 4 through, through 12, there's, there's two words that are repeated five times each. The word one and the word two. And I think the preacher has a real message and he's going to show us the difference between one and two. And how we is better than me. Verse 4, for I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, envy or jealousy. Remember, um, some of you were around here for the Micah series. And there was another word for envy or jealous that I couldn't pronounce, if you remember that. Covetousness. I learned to pronounce it. Woo, after three months. So covet, envy, jealousy, all of those are, what they are is they're an intense desire to have something that someone else possesses. And envy or jealousy stands opposed to Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourself. Envy has long been considered one of the seven deadly sins, and it's for a very good reason. Envy is so very subtle and it's so very destructive to relationships. Consider this old saying, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. Let that just ring true for a moment. It's actually easier to grieve when other people grieve. But in our flesh, when other people succeed or all the things in their life are connecting while our life is maybe going well, or, um, or when our life isn't going so well, it's easy to be envious. Deep down, when we see someone succeed and make things work, we might smile. We might say congratulations. But in our flesh, deep down, we can have feelings of jealousy. It can even make us feel worse about ourselves. This is a result of the fall. It's an upside-down relationship when we envy other people. A true friend one who truly loves his neighbor will not only grieve with another, but will rejoice in the other's successes. Jesus says we're to love others, but oftentimes we're too focused on wanting what they have, and we end up loving them to get what we desire. It's called conditional love. So when we stop just for a moment and think about loving and serving our neighbor, it prevents two extremes that the preacher identifies here in verses 5 and 6. When we love our neighbor, it prevents um, these um, two extremes, idle laziness and selfish ambition. Both of those are opposed to loving our neighbor. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. You see, idle laziness is a way of hating your neighbor, actually. Um, you have nothing to give him. Give them. Give your neighbor. A fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And this, the, the preacher makes a striking statement to show the ills of being slothful. Instead of giving himself to others, he gives himself to himself. 
so that in the end, all he has is himself. This is a picture of a lonely person finding pleasure and relationships in things like gaming and social media and pornography. This is a picture of someone who is uh, lazy and consumed with his own pleasure, his own needs, and his own protection. You see, humans were created for relationship, and we were created for work. Lazy people don't love their neighbor. They love themselves, and they're consumed with their comfort. He speaks about selfish ambition, and selfish ambition also prevents us from loving our neighbor. We can, we can be selfishly ambitious while constantly longing for what we don't have. We always have, as he says in verse 6, two hands full of toil and effort. We're always going, I want more. I need more. Give me more. Working 14 hours a day for more, more, more. This person is always pressing ahead, never satisfied. It's like chasing after the wind. See, when we live to perpetuate the American dream and to keep up with the Joneses, we start seeing other people as a competition, and we start envying and wanting what they have. And by the way, this includes not only material possessions, but includes things like, like personalities and friendships. That's a place where I can struggle from time to time. I, ver- I rarely am envious about things, but I'm like envious about the way people are wired. Like, I wish I had that softer side sometimes. I wish I had a little bit more mercy. I can become jealous of that person. (coughs) You can become jealous of of somebody else that appears to have well-behaved children. You can become jealous of somebody that's retiring on time into a comfortable retirement. You see, when we constantly have two hands cupped, seeking to get more and more to one day finally enjoy it, we will tend to miss the good gifts that God has given us now to enjoy. And let me just say this. Today, this is the best day of your life. This is the day that the Lord made. Be glad and rejoice in it. This is the best day of your life, whether you have kids or have no kids. This is the best day of your life, whether you are married or desire to be married. This is the best day of your life, whether you are sick or healthy. Stop chasing the wind, is what the preacher's telling us. Stop thinking the future will be easier and better. You don't know the future. You don't know what's around the corner. Perhaps these are the best days of your life because you might be dead tomorrow. Live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you want to have but which you can't actually control at all. Verse 6. Better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. We just talked about the toil part. Two handfuls. And he's striving after the wind. So, so after confronting us with the vanity of selfish ambition and idle laziness, the preacher now describes the middle path. The middle path of loving and serving your neighbor. And when I stop and think about how I can serve and love my neighbor instead of thinking about what I can get from my neighbor. It prevents the two extremes of idle laziness and selfish achievement. When, when we realize there's a middle way between being lazy in the here and now and busting a gut for the future, we find quietness and contentment. This is a picture of one hand earning, one hand working, rather than both hands cup trying to get all that we can, 
and, and then the other hand, full of quietness. It's a picture of being content with what God gives you. It allows us to love our neighbor in practical ways without always wanting what they have. In this one-handed quietness versus two-handed, two hands cupped breeds generosity. When God gives you more, instead of thinking of ways to protect and store it up, think of ways how you can bless other people with it. Loving your neighbor cures envy by placing the desire to help others above the need to supersede them. Quietness and contentment are found in living for we, not me. And it's based on a proverbial wisdom of two is better than one. So we just saw that the vanity of envy and how it leads to either selfish ambition or idle laziness. And now the preacher exposes the real tragedy beneath beneath both of those. Verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Here's what vanity is. It's doing everything by myself, for myself, to enjoy myself. Striving with both hands, never satisfied with riches, and never stopping to ask. Now, I want to just say this. Um, riches is not bad. Money is not bad. That's not what he's saying. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money. So he says, he says that, that he, we never stop to ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Who am I working so hard for and depriving myself of pleasure today? <coughs> And then the preacher says, never-ending toil in eyes that are never satisfied with riches, riches is an unhappy business. Now the preacher drills down and shows us the remedy to this tragedy in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one. That's the remedy. And he says, because they have a good reward for their toil or for their efforts. <coughs> Let's pause. It's good stuff. Thank you, Lord. This good reward for their toil, here's what it's not. It isn't necessarily the win. It isn't necessarily the goal. It's not the, the, the goal that you and others are working towards. An example would be this. The good reward in parenting isn't necessarily producing moral kids that go to college, get married, and have kids. <clears throat> that's a good thing. Those are all good things. But I don't think it's a good reward that the preacher is talking about. I believe the reward that the preacher is referring to is a relationship itself. Sharing life together as you toil. The reward is the intimate relationships that are developed when two or more toil together. And this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I uh, were made for relationship. And God didn't give us a to-do list and a bunch of laws to follow and say, hey, just go get her done. Here you go. Here's the list. Here's the Ten Commandments. Go get her done. 
He made us for a relationship with him. And he said, I am with you always until the end of the age. I am with you today. I'm with you forever. He says, now obey with my help, with the help of the Spirit. He says, when you fall, I will still love you. When you stumble, I'll pick you up. When you're sad, I'll wipe your tears. When you wander, I'll bring you back. The point isn't that we can get more done and accomplish bigger and better things together, even though we might. The point is relationship. And if the point is relationship, we see in verses 10 through 12, we see the benefits of two being better than one. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The preacher lived in Jerusalem. And he was most likely thinking of people traveling in the Middle East when he wrote this. Traveling in the Middle East could be dangerous, especially at night. There's no, there's no streets, no street lights, no headlamps. Walking on trails that frequently follow the edge of ravines where people can easily stumble and plunge down the embankment. The landscape was dotted with hidden pits to trap animals. Travel was dangerous in the Middle East. But two are better than one because they have a good reward for the toil. For if they fall, one will, will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. When he follows, he has not another to lift him up. <coughs> Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? They often traveled at night in the Middle East. They didn't carry sleeping bags or blankets. They carried a cloak. And oftentimes they would huddle together to, to warm one another up with each other's body heat. And in verse 12, though a man might prevail or overpower against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, it's an illustration from the Middle East and away from the safety of the towns and the cities. There was a danger of robbers and thieves who roamed the countryside. Two will not be overpowered and three is even better. So these three illustrations give three instances of the advantages of being together with a second one. But they apply to a much broader, uh, uh, much broader sense than traveling through the Middle East. Thank, thank the Lord. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit some thoughts to you. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if one falls, the other can pick them up. This is the purpose of community and relationship. And in order, when, when one falls, when you fall, in order for me to pick you up, several things need to be happening. One is that we actually need to be living in proximity with one another. I actually need to know that you fall. I actually need to see that you fall. I actually need to hear that you fall. And then there's got to be um, transparency, uh, transparency and humility. Um, if you come to me or, or I come to you, say, man, I, I've, I've fell. Um, I've, I've, failed, I've failed morally. I've, um, I've blew it this way. Um, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. There's got to be humility and transparency. There's got to be transparency and humility on my part. And on your part, there has to be the knowledge that you're not above me and you're not above whatever it is that I'm struggling with. The reality is that we're all people in process. So in order for us to, to uh, pick one another up when we fall, um, we've got to be in proximity with one another. We've got to live in transparency and humility with one another. And then we got, there's got to be the safety and knowledge and agreement that we're all people in process. 
A few years ago, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, we taught through the book of Galatians. I taught through Galatians 6, 1 through 3, and it wrecked me. Because I'm, kind of I'm kind of a microwave pastor, actually, uh, in my flesh. And what, the, what do I mean by that? What it means is that, that like, if you come to me, and uh, not today, I think I'm, I'm growing through this, by the way, uh, but, but somebody were to come to me, and they're struggling with something, like, man, I'll, yeah, I'll meet with you for four, five, six times, and, and I'll give you X, Y, and Z to do, and then um, and if you don't change, um, you know, don't let the door hit you in the, in the behind. I mean, that's just kind of the way I operated because I really felt like um, kind of had the attitude that, you know, if you made your bed, um, you need to sleep in it. Um, but I'm thankful that people didn't treat Nancy and I that way in some of the struggles that we've had over the last 10 years, in some of the financial struggles and that type of thing over the last 10, 12 years, actually. Listen to Galatians 6, 1 through 3. This is how we're to live out this first, this first point from verse 10. If one falls, there's somebody else there to pick him up. Brothers, verse 1, Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, let that just sit for a minute. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Um, what that's a picture there, caught is actually, um, if you look at the Greek root of that, is actually ensnared. It's like a fish caught in a net. It's, 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 if, anybody, if anyone is caught in any transgression, meaning that, that, that people aren't always willfully sinning. That there's, there's always something underneath our behavior. There's some type of wrong belief. There's some type of brokenness. There's some type of hurt, some type of pain. And what he's saying is that you, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And the picture of restoring isn't just to like clean up their sin, but it's actually to restore them to a right relationship with the Father and a right relationship with whoever it is that they're struggling with. Restoring is the bullseye, it's the center of reconciliation. And then he goes on to say, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. If you're ministering, if you're, if you're helping somebody up from their struggle, and you go, man, I don't know how you ever got there, that would never happen to me. You're prideful. You're prideful. It says, keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. And then verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill, so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And what is this passage telling us on how to love our neighbor? To, to fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens. Number two. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? I'm never sharing my sleeping bag with anybody in here. Only my wife. But in a Christian relationship, here's how I think that we can warm each other. And it's, it's warming each other with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're cold, when we've um, maybe lost our first love, when we're doubting, in, in, in Christian relationships, we, we often operate with either um, license or legalism. And here's what I mean by that, is that when, when we're together in community groups or in your um, accountability groups or whatever groups you meet in, um, and you've gotten to a point where there's transparency and humility and you've acknowledged that we're all people in process. And so, so now you actually start praying for each other. You actually start sharing things that you're struggling with. What, what can happen, though, is that um, if you lean towards license, 
you can be telling the person, hey, you know what? It's okay. Whatever X, Y, and Z is that you did, uh, whatever your response to that is, uh, that's okay. Um, it's, you're, you're covered by the blood of Jesus. You can continue sinning so that grace may abound forevermore. You're giving them a license to continue sinning, basically. And that, that solves nothing. <coughs> Over here is legalism. Where it's like, dude, stop that. Just, just stop it. You know, here they are, they're, they're humble, they're transparent, it's safe and all that, and then they, they say it and you just say, stop it. Well, there's, there's truth in that. Because all sin is an affront to a holy God. But, but the middle place between legalism and license is the gospel. The gospel doesn't give license to sin, and it doesn't use legalism to stop sin. So instead of pouring the cold water of legalism or license on one another, we're to warm each other up with the light of the gospel. It's the only remedy to the frigid air of loss and pain and sin. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being reminded that Jesus died on a cross for your sin. That he rose again from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he gave you the Holy Spirit. He gave you the power and the ability to say no to sin. And what motivates you to be able to say no to sin is the love of Christ. So we need to remind one another often of the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only saved you, but keeps you. And that's how we live that middle one out. And the next comes from verse 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their effort. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Who are our greatest enemies? It's the sin in our flesh. And it's the enemy. It's Satan. Those two things want to overpower us. And if you know Jesus Christ, they can't do any lasting harm. But they can sure mess up your relationships. They can mess up your relationships with the Father and with others. And sin and Satan will have their way with Christians living outside of biblical community. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And what Paul is saying here is that whatever it is that you're dealing with, um, it's not a special case for you. Everybody has dealt with it at some level. And that's the value of being in community. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that. The God of all mercies has comforted us so that we might what? Be able to comfort others. But we can't, uh, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you're being tempted, look for the way of escape. And a lot of times the way of escape is picking up that phone, running to your brother or sister who's got your back. Could be your husband, could be your wife, could be your roommate. But Run. But we can't flee from every temptation. When I have the temptation to be angry at Nancy, I can't, I can't exercise that anger and I can't run from it. But Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
I've got this picture of just three people standing back to back. I think they used to do that actually in the ancient days in, in war, is that three would stand back to back so that so they could always see the enemy. And when you know what I struggle with, when you know my fears, my struggles, you know my temptations, you know how to stand in the gap for me. When I know yours, I know how to stand in the gap. So we need to live in transparent, humble community, acknowledging that we're all people in process. We need more depth with our relationships. Relationships on a superficial level can hardly help us spot sin as it creeps into our hearts. We need friendships that are real, meaningful, and intimate. This is not an optional uh, extra. At Windsor Community Church, we have something called community groups. We have 16 of them. Community groups in this church is not the end. It's not the end. Sometimes I might speak about it as the end. Some of the other pastors might speak. It's not the end. It's a means towards loving your neighbor and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ who have yet to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've had to create them. They're extra biblical, actually. Community groups, missional communities, life groups, whatever you want to call them, they're extra biblical. Does it mean they're bad? No. It means that when when Christians were saved back in chapter 2 of Acts after Pentecost, um, they just came together. They had to be together. It was just for mere survival. So we've created community groups because we know. I know my own heart that I'm prone to wander. I know my own heart that I'm prone to be a lone ranger. So we've created community groups with the encouragement for, uh, and, and a place for you to belong, where you can be known, where everybody not only knows your names, but they know your joys, your struggles, your fears, your temptations. We need friends to whom we can give a fishing license to by saying, when you talk to me, I want you, you've got a license to find out whatever you want about my life, whatever you want. We need to give them permission to challenge us and exhort us. And then our promise to them is that we will make it relatively easy for them to do and to say what has been done and said. <coughs> I've had a few guys in my life <coughs> that have actually called me out. And that's a tough task. I'm not, I'm not like, you know, the easiest guy to call out. But I want to grow in humility where when people see things in my life that, they're, that they're, they can, they can, they're, they're free to question it. They're free to press in. You see, living in community, like we've just described, involves taking responsibility for one another. It's hard work. And it means that all of us have a responsibility for others that are within our relational proximity. And I'd encourage you, even as families, even as roommates, think about what your concentric circles are. In God's providence, not, not, what, not like the, the lawyer, um, who do you want to be your neighbor, but who is God in his providence put in your life that is your neighbor. And these relationships are not those achieved by simply going to church with someone, but rather by living alongside one another and sharing our lives all week long. Loving your neighbor as yourself involves living in community where you and I are living for we, not me. And I would just submit to you in closing a couple of questions, but also a statement that I think community is a discipline. It's a choice. Um, it's, it's a choice. And we have 
We had limited bandwidth. I know it. Some of you have less bandwidth than I have. You're going like, how do I do this? Well, it's, I just know that God said his yoke was easy. And I just, and I know that he wants you in deeper, more intimate relationships with others. If you pray about it, seek counsel, he'll, he'll lead you. Jesus had the three, he had the 12, and he had the 72. And I was talking with Nancy, and I said, well, how did Jesus have a relationship with 72 people? And she goes, well, he was God. And even with that, I'm thinking, no, but he was fully human. I don't think he really had the relationship that he wants us to have with one another with the 72. He did it with the 12, and he did it with the three. You know, one of the biggest complaints that we get when we go from one service to two services and two services to three, one of the biggest complaints we have when we multiply churches is, like, how am I ever going to see my friends anymore? And I'm thinking to myself, now you're hearing it out loud, um, like, what makes you, what makes them a friend just because you sit next to them for an hour and 15 minutes and listen to a coughing preacher? What makes them a friend is what happens the other six days of the week and how you bear one another's burdens. So are you living more for me or are you living more for we? Are you enjoying the reward of relationship because it is a beautiful gift and reward? And what's standing in the way of deeper relationships? And this, as you're listening, you might, this might even be for you and your wife, for you and your spouse, for you and your roommate because it starts right there. Was that my Facebook friend? everything okay that wasn't like a a heart alert it wasn't your heart alert was it John because she should be sitting right there instead of going out there and for we I want to ask this question for we how are we doing together as a church how are we doing because actually um, how we're doing together is our greatest witness it's our greatest witness um, Jesus said that they'll know you are my followers. They'll know you are Christians by your what? By your love for one another. And that's why that second commandment is so important. You know, the first one we can, you know, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, we can, we can um, cover that one up, I think, by just being the word daily and coming to Sunday gathering and all that. I don't, I don't mean covering it up, but it's just like, but I think the real testimony is if we are living, if we are loving the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we are loving our neighbors ourselves, actually. So how are we doing? My prayer is that, um, that you'd ponder these questions. My prayer is that the onlooking um, secular community whom we're called to reach and love would see that there is such spectacular, unconditional, transparent, humble, people-in-process love that they would want to know the God behind that. They'd want to know the one who is motivating that love for one another. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, your living, active, and holy word. God, thank you that, um, that you created us for a relationship. You didn't just create us for the sake of creating us and so that we can just meander for 70, 80 years on this earth and then one day die and, um, and uh, maybe be in a relationship with you. But you created um, our, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, to walk in the cool of the garden with you.
to be in intimate relationship with you. And God, I praise you that that didn't change, that your desire for humanity didn't change, even though they were cast out of the garden and everybody after them was cast out. God, I thank you that you had a plan from eternity past to continue the work that you started of creating people for a relationship with yourself. And I thank you that started uh, what started with Abraham's seed, but we thank you, God, that it came to culmination through Emmanuel, God with us, that, Lord Jesus, you came to be with us to model what these type of relationships look like. And you lived the perfect life. You lived the life that we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserved to die, and you victoriously rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And God, I thank you that you gave us the, you, you, you placed a guarantee on our heart, that you've sealed us, that you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live life in joyful submission to you, in relationship with you, our Father, now, in relationship with one another. So God, I pray that, um, that these relationships would, that you would use the way that we are living together and loving one another, God, as our greatest witness. And I pray people that you would just cause a hunger and thirst in northern Colorado for people to want what it is that we have. And that's the relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything on it. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and close our service together. Supreme.